everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is the president of the Mockingbird Foundation, Adam Scheinberg. The Mockingbird Foundation turns 25 years old this year. I'm sure you've heard about it because to celebrate, the foundation is hosting a series of live streams, performances, and masterclasses on fans.live. It's all for free this coming weekend. The Mockingbird Foundation to me is synonymous with fish charities, and I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to hear about the inner workings of the foundation, Adam's role within it, as well as the details about the Mockingbird sessions this weekend. For his attendance bias, Adam chose to discuss Fish's show at the Grey Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark, on July 2nd, 1998. Throughout today's conversation, Adam talks about what brought him to Europe in that summer of 1998, the slate of new songs debuted on that tour, and the all-time version of Ghost that was played at this show. So let's join Adam to hear all of those topics and more on Attendance Bias. Let's meet today's guest. Adam Scheinberg, thanks so much for being on Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm fantastic, Brian. Thank you so much for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. I am very excited to talk about today's show, to talk about the Mockingbird Foundation, to talk about the Mockingbird Sessions. And I think the thing I'm most interested in is the 98 European Tour, which you did most of it. And I think it's one of the more underrepresented fish European tours of the three that they've done in the mid to late 90s. So there's a lot to digest here, but let's start at the beginning. You are the president of the Mockingbird Foundation. Is that right? That's right. I have been president for probably two or three years now, and uh, it is a huge point of pride for me. I love the foundation and what we do, and I love the community and the support that we get. And when you mentioned the foundation and what we do, that's something I want to dig into a little bit. I think that a lot of fish fans, they hear the phrase, all proceeds will go to the Mockingbird Foundation. And I think a lot of people think, oh, money, fish, Mockingbird Foundation, good. But it's a little more complex than that. So if I am a complete noob and I've never heard of the Mockingbird Foundation, but everyone around me supports it and I donate $25, where does my $25 go and what is it supporting? But sure, I'll start by saying uh, Mockingbird Foundation, fish, good, is not a horrible <laughs> high-level overview. Um, and, I, and I like that people think that. The foundation, very briefly, was formed in 1996 by some fish fans, and they had two purposes. One of them was to start actually creating some legal ownership of intellectual property like set lists and, and reactions to those set lists. But at the same time, they wanted to do something good, so they decided to support music education. And we are now 25 years into this experiment, and that is still what we do. There are still no full-time staff members or part-time staff. We don't have any paid staff. We are still raising money to support music education. We tend to focus our grants on anywhere in the United States that needs uh, any sort of support. And we also do tour grants wherever FISH plays. We look for schools and other educational opportunities where we can uh, provide some level of support. We have one of the lowest percentages of overhead of any charity that I've ever ever seen anywhere on GuideStar or anything like that. So almost all of the money that's donated 
goes directly into the hands of um, educators and programs that are supporting kids' music education. And does that mean buying instruments for possibly underserved schools or perhaps getting space for practice for school bands? Yeah, uh, this is a really nuanced point that is debated frequently amongst our board members. There is no direct line. We don't say the money is going to be used for instruments. When people submit a grant application, they explain to us. And there are times where buying an instrument makes a lot of sense because the instrument can be used for a long time and handed from you know student to student. But there are scenarios where bringing in a, a properly skilled educator can be a game changer for certain types of programs. When we invested in a program that was really focused on uh, teenage uh, rehabilitation in uh, the midst of like backwoods, Tennessee. And they had this program where they were testing whether music education would affect the repeat presence of young people in uh, facilities. That, that was a very different kind of investment. When we invested in sending people to a remote Alaskan village to help them reconnect with traditional um, Athabascan fiddle music that had existed for a very long time, but was sort of breaking apart because of loss of that heritage. That was investing in people and skill and, you know, and teachers. So there is a huge variety of things that I think are valid investments for the foundation, and they're all debated individually. And if there's someone listening, be it a music educator or someone who is somehow connected with a school or a music program, and they think to themselves, oh, my God, this sounds great. I have a great idea. How would someone apply for a grant or submit a grant? Sure. Um, mbird.org is our website. And if you go there, there's information about each year's grant rounds. And there's information about what previous grantees were and how the process works. And we're always looking for um, opportunities. We do three primary types of grants, our annual grants uh, that we sometimes do twice a year now. Um, So that would be our standard grants. Then we do our tour grants, which are unsolicited in areas where fish plays. And then we do emergency grants when there is a unique scenario, like a fire burns down a school and the music program will otherwise be destroyed or tornadoes burn through Joplin, Missouri. And we rescue a music program that, you know, might not exist if we didn't show up. And we just sort of knock on the door and say, hi, here's a check. (laughs) And it's God's work. Uh, So how did you get involved with the Mockingbird Foundation? You said it's been around since around 1996. How long have you been a part of it? The Mockingbird Foundation owns and operates fish.net, which, you know, I usually describe as like the gold standard of, um, if that's not too obnoxious, the gold standard of uh, sort of fan cataloging of a band experience. I think everyone um, would agree with you. I don't think this podcast would even exist without fish.net. I, I mean, I've when I have spare time, sometimes I'll just read the song histories just for fun, just like I might read Wikipedia for Star Wars just to keep my brain entertained. So I think yeah. that standard is is pretty accurate. Well, I I very much appreciate you saying that. As the guy who wrote the majority of the site, I appreciate it, but there are scores of people who have gone into generating the content, which is really what keeps people there. A huge team, awesome people. And so to answer your question, it was sometime in like 1999, probably, that I reached out and I said, hey, 
you've got this page that sort of generates a random set list and I think I can do it better. And that was the first bit that I had written. And then sometime during the breakup, I reached out and I said, this site is kind of staling and it isn't really working the way that it should. The FAQ in particular is, is in disrepair. Would you mind if I rewrote it? And after I had rewritten some of it, we started talking about what about what about rewriting the whole thing? It was just you know a document. It was basically static HTML. And I said, well, we could put it into a database and then you could look at all kinds of things. And it sort of snowballed from there. Eventually I got involved with the foundation because the two are, or at the time, were a little more difficult to uh, separate. Eventually I became passionate enough about what the foundation does that I was asked to run it. I was asked by a few people to stand in the president role. So very honored to be in that role and I'll serve there for a little longer and then it will be my job to find the next leader and uh, pass, pass the crown. So it's for the record, the Mockingbird Foundation and Fish Inc. are not linked? Uh, not officially. There, there is certainly some friendly cooperation between the two, but we are an independent organization and um, we try to stay on the right side of Fish Inc. and uh, cooperate with them as much as possible. Fish themselves are, are a huge uh, donor to the Mockingbird Foundation, and I would probably the largest individual donor over our history. So I certainly would want to acknowledge them for that as well. In a few days, we're getting ready for the Mockingbird sessions. Just to start from the basics, what are the Mockingbird sessions and where did they come from? Who had the idea? What can fans expect? few years ago, we started having the conversation, which was, hey, we're going to celebrate our 25th year. What do we do for that celebration? And that was a long conversation. And uh, the uh, sort of the end result is the Mockingbird sessions. I'm snubbing a lot of people by, by sort of mowing over all the hard work that went into this and and the few people who thought big enough to say we could do something massive and I think we could really um, deliver. But a few of our directors really blew it out of the water and said, what if we could get all sorts of people to come together and create a, just a massive, a massive sort of festival? And then COVID happened and a massive festival didn't look like it was in the cards. So we started talking about what about a multi-day live stream with a ton of artists who support both fish, but also what we do as the foundation? Because truthfully, as much as we all love fish, the truth is what we do transcends any one band and lots of uh, the recipients of, of our grants, you know, over 400 are, are a demonstration of the fact that we are really about music education and arts education, and lots of people support that. So um, over the, the three days, June 4th, 5th, and 6th, we're going to see all sorts of presentations from bands like uh, Marco Benevento, Joe Russo, Christian McBride, Michaela Davis. Um, we're going to see Neighbor. We're going to see uh, Yonder Mountain Trio uh, and many, many more. I, I don't want to uh, put one above another, but it's going to be amazing. We're also going to have master classes in bass, drums, guitar, and keys from a number of accomplished artists. This is going to be three 
packed days that are a celebration of music and hopefully get people to be a little more familiar with what we do and feel comfortable sending some money to support our mission. That sounds extremely exciting. By the time this airs, I'm sure all this information will be out there, but just in case it isn't, if I'm online and I want to attend either a masterclass or just check out some of these streams, where might I go to find a hookup link for these? Yeah, we are we are doing this in partnership with fans.live and uh, they have been awesome. It will be uh, available on their website as well, fans.live. And that's fans with an F? That's that's F A N S dot L I V E. Yes. I'm an English teacher. Just got to check the no, details you're right. to be sure. You're you right. never know. How did I miss saying that? <laughs> <laughs> I should have known better. We all know that the Mockingbird Foundation now and Fisher connected in a million ways and that everyone on the board, I assume, is a big fan. Let's hear about you as a fan. So growing up, before you even got into Fish, what were some of your musical favorites? What was before Fish for you, Adam? I, I went through a couple of aggressive phases of, uh, of oh, different like bands. I was, I was a Beatles fan when I was young. Uh, then I got really into Iron Maiden. And um, uh, I, you know, I went through my grunge phase and my Smashing Pumpkins phase. And ultimately, I really fell hard into Rush. And I, you know, as a musician myself, um, you know, I'm sitting in a room right now with piano, one, two, three, four guitars, bass, drums, uh, you know, Rush, Rush was sort of the pinnacle. It was like, you know, amazing accomplished musicianship and amazing songs with depth and great lyrics. And uh, a little bit of a funny story, when I was looking at colleges, I went to the University of Wisconsin with um, somebody who I knew semi-well, another big music fan. And I got into a thing with him and I said, let me play you some music. And I played him Rush La Via Strangiato. And he played B. And I remember sitting in his sister's dorm room and laughing. I said to him, you think this is on the same level with what I just played you? This is, this is a joke. And then I uh, then I went home and I couldn't get this damn song out of my head. And within a what week, I owned, I owned Junta. And uh, within a few months, I had most of the studio albums. And that was it. I was down the rabbit hole. With Rush, I wonder if it's the Fishman-Neil Pert connection of unbelievably exotic timekeepers. And when I say exotic, yeah, I, I don't mean that they're like, they're, they're just metronomes, but that they could fit everything in. It's like a kid in uh, like a seven-year-old who stuffs everything into his closet and is still able to shut the door. So it looks like the room is clean. That's the, that's what I picture when I hear both Fishman and Neil Pert playing, like they're never going to get that fill in by the time you have to get back to the beat. And they always do. I can't argue with that. I love the metaphor. I think there's truth that both bands have really strong drumming. But what I think it is, is a progression. And I'm not sure that one is greater than the other. Rush is about teaching yourself to really stretch as a musician and then doing picture-perfect replication. When you go see Rush, what you want to hear is exactly what you heard on the record. You don't want a different fill that feels right in the moment. You want the fill exactly the way that you heard it on the record. And if you look around, you're going to see people 
air drumming that exact fill exactly the way that it's <laughs> I'm probably played. one I'm of drum them. Kit. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you go to see a fish show, you're looking for what I believe is like equally part of the same thing, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is immense talent, but you are not bound to what's been recorded. You are performing the song and you're letting the moment define how it's played. And so I feel like they are they are both journeys on the same, both destinations on the same journey, believe it or not. Uh, and if you're a musician, you can appreciate both, or you should be able to appreciate both, just as you can appreciate, you know, jazz improv the same way that you can look at perfect replication of any other genre. Well, I think as fish fans, we want it both ways. A lot of the time we want perfect replication of the composed sections and someone like me might bitch a little bit when Fluffhead is screwed up, as it is a little bit later in today's show, uh, July 2nd, 98, at, in Copenhagen. But at the back end of Fluffhead, when there's an incredible solo, and maybe in today's Ghost, where there's this mind-bending jam, it's like, oh, well, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to come back tomorrow night for that. So sometimes you kind of want to have it both ways, right? Picture-perfect replication and I want in the moment, mind bending improvisation. I, I agree with you with, with the following sort of footnote, which is when I go to a fish concert, I never go home and say, boy, they nailed water in the sky, right? They, they just hit it perfectly. I talk about, oh my gosh, that split open and melt, not the beginning, but the end is, is really something special. So I think what makes a fish show memorable is when they do something different and unique and notable. And that's why something like fish.net is necessary because we want to, we want to note everything that varies from performance to performance and all the things that make a given show unique. It's also why people will see 20 shows of fish in a year. And I don't know many people who see 20 rush shows a year. In fact, I think seeing two or three rush shows on any given tour used to be enough because you knew you were getting the exact same set. You knew you were getting the exact same transitions, the same jokes in between. Nothing against that. But what makes the fish show special is not the replication. It's the it's the on the spot. No, I agree with you. It's the differences. I'm such a nerd for setless notes. I love it when there's a lot of asterisks all over. And I remember uh, trading tapes or receiving tapes. And I like how everyone had their own little, uh, their own little symbols, like whether it's uh, an ampersand or an exclamation point or whatever, and then written in tiny lettering on the bottom of the J card, what that meant with special as alternate ending, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that I eat that up. And speaking what, of what was, back, your, what was your example, Bob Galati on drums? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's Hartford '96. Yeah, yeah. I love. Yeah. I, I all this stuff is burned into my brain. Uh, I'm gonna die yep. with it. I'll, you know, I'll forget my keys, but I'll remember the date that Bob Galati <laughs> sat in on drums. Yeah. And going. Speaking of going back, uh, back in time a little bit. So, when was your first show? Uh, it was actually a show directly after that. So that show that you just referenced was like October. 23rd, 1996. So my first show was October 25th, 1996 in Hampton. Kind of a funny story. I went to school at James Madison, which is about four hours north. I was just so excited for this show. And a whole bunch of my friends were going. I ended up in a car with four, well, I guess three other guys. 
We headed down. We were in insane traffic. We got there and I did not have a ticket. And I, I assumed I'd be able to find one on the lot, but there really were no tickets to be found. And so we had to make a decision to go back or not. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I made a last second call. You guys head home. I'll figure it out. Right. Like, I'm not going to die in Hampton. I'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. The band started playing. Things started to cool down. And somebody came over to me and said, you need a ticket. And I said, yes. And that was that. I was in. So I walked in only having missed a song or two. And I had I was alone for the entire show. I loved it. On the way out, I walked out and I sat by the fountain and I started thinking to myself, so realistically, how am I going to get back? You know, how am I, I it's, it's a lot to ask somebody to drive down. And just as I did, some of my friends walked by. So uh, I packed into a car and I think six of us drove back to JMU packed into a little sedan. Awesome experience. Absolutely loved that show. You really got the full experience at your first show where everyone has a story where they're going by themselves or they forgot a ticket or uh, they happen to run into their friends post show. That all happened to you in one shot at your first. first shot. That's it. That was it. When was this show played? So fast forward a little bit to today's show, which was July 2nd, 1998 at the Gray Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. I have a million questions about fish in Europe in general, but especially fish in 98 in Europe. So I just want to give a little context for anyone listening, but I'm really going to lean on you a little bit because you were there. Sure. You know more than I do about it, of course. So the overview, and feel free to jump in, correct me, expand upon whenever you want, is that Fish played nine shows in Western Europe starting on June 30th and ending on July 10th. And when I looked at this tour itinerary in preparation for this recording, I thought it was really interesting. They played nine shows, but it was only four venues. And I looked at the other previous European tours in 96 and 97. They were much more extensive and they were a lot more one-off shows. In prior European tours, keep in mind, there was not a lot of real-time stuff happening in the mid-90s when it came to fish. So I would be oftentimes checking online and set lists sometimes were updated typically on Andy Gadiel's page. Yep. Um, you know, every couple of songs, you'd get a chunk of incoming stuff, but there weren't many discussion boards and they didn't flow at the speed that they did. Certainly, we didn't have cell phones everywhere. And then you would often have to wait you know, three months to get tapes unless you had a taper friend. So the prior European shows, you would wake up and you'd, you know, either go to work or go to the computer room or whatever, and you would check the set list. And those shows were so fun. So I graduated college in 1998. I had applied to work at Dry Goods and not gotten a call back. Uh, I I thought I would go to law school, but didn't go to law school. I was just in a place where I said, whatever they're doing in Europe this year, I'm going. And when they announced it, it sort of looked like a good deal for me because it didn't involve all sorts of traveling and complex planning. It was like, oh, I just got to get from one place to two other places. And then there's a festival in the middle, and I think I'll play that by year. So I mail ordered all my tickets, got them all. And jumped on a plane and went to Copenhagen. Again, this is entirely on my own. 
on the 29th of June, I landed and I went right to Christiania, which is the section of Copenhagen where the Grey Hall is. And the band was there sound checking. And, we, you know, there were a number of us sitting outside listening and then it poured and we were gathered under the the uh, the, the ledge listening to uh, songs that I had not heard before, some of which they had played on the island tour. But if you weren't there, you wouldn't know. Setting the tone for the Grey Hall. It really is like the size of a high school gym. Yeah, I did a little um, research. It was originally built as army barracks. The building was. Makes sense. I mean, this is quite a while ago. So, you know, I'm working with fuzzy memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also didn't have cameras that didn't have film in them. Of so, course. you know, the number of pictures we have is is limited as well, which adds to the lore. You know, you can sort of fill it in with imagination. But it was a very small place. And at this point, Fish was playing larger venues. So the idea of seeing Fish in a place with like 1,500 people was already kind of crazy. And, and I highly doubt there were 1,500 people there. I mean, I can't imagine this was a sold out show. So it was very small. You were very close to the band. They were walking around outside just amongst everybody. It was common to sort of pass band members in the the uh, sort of bubble after the show. You know, you'd get in line for the falafel cart and you'd literally be standing behind Trey and you would just have to contain yourself because everyone was playing it cool. So you couldn't yeah. be you couldn't be the guy who wasn't, you know. Yeah, and that um, comes through in the recording today. You could hear it. You could hear the comfort between the band and the crowd. It's almost like an ongoing conversation. It really is that way in my memory. I mean, again, you know, I don't know how much of it is realistic and how much <laughs> is it. We weren't on top of them. Uh, they were certainly on a stage, but there wasn't a ton of distance, and there was so much space in the room that it did feel very intimate. And on and my memory, particularly of July first is that I was like standing eight feet from Paige, you know? I mean, it was so close and I just can't envision a, a fish concert in something that small again, that wasn't, you know, some exclusive event. I have to ask, were you worried about yourself at all? Because you say how you're on your own and you're solo. Sometimes I get even nervous going to a show solo on my own. Like in 2015, I think I was at the second night of Meriwether Post by myself. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know if it's going to be that much fun. You're on a plane going transatlantic. Well, again, this is post-college. So there was some level of I'm going to I'm just going to land where I land and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I will say that by the by the afternoon of the 29th, I had sort of found a crew of people that I um, that I spent quite a bit of time with. So it was mostly Americans that were there. It, it might have been a European tour, but I really don't recall there being people who were just, you know, prog locals going to a, a, a fish concert. So I, I didn't feel any, there was no moment where I felt like I was uh, sketched out. Interestingly enough, the first person who I met in Copenhagen was a guy named Chris. And he said, I've got an extra bed at my place. And I was like, cool, I'd love to stay there. And he and I hung out for a bunch of the tour and then went our separate ways. And I ran into him again in like 2017. You know, we, we had that shared history. It was crazy. Only at fish. So, I know. 
I know. And talking about the music during this 1998 European tour, during the 96 European tour, it was littered. The set lists were littered with songs from Billy Breathe, uh, Breathes. And so this length, uh, this run of shows was littered with songs from the story of the ghost, which makes sense. It was being recorded in the spring. By July, I think they were finished recording and now baby was being mixed. So I think that explains a lot of these uh, Shafty and Meat and Ficus showing up in today's show. Also in the first show of this run, right? This is the third night of three nights at the Gray Hall. It is. Uh, there were three nights at the Gray Hall and all three have a very different personality. 6.30.98 is a packed set list. I mean, I remember there being a ton of songs and I don't know how many there are, but my memory is just that it was like filled. The second night, which would be July 1st, 98, when I think of it, I primarily think of that down with disease that drops just effortlessly into Dogface Boy. I mean, what, what a special night that was. I feel like I can see the red lights pointing down on me, looking up at Paige. I remember that moment so clearly, you know, and, and I don't remember tons of specific moments clearly from all the shows that I've been to, but that one to me is like, I can see the spot that I was in. I remember that feeling because it just felt to me like that's the definition of a segue. It just like turned from one to another. Um, the, the third night is the one that I have listened to unquestionably more than anything else from Europe 98. The first set, which we'll cover, is pretty packed, mostly with unremarkable things 20-something years later. But it was awesome when it actually happened. And Trey is pretty chatty, which is, you know, not typical. And the second set is like the dream set list. It's like four songs that make up the entire set. All four of them are really good, you know, and, and notable versions of each of those four songs. It feels a little bit like, oh, well, the, the, it makes sense that the, the last night was the summation of the prior two. <laughs> you add them together and that's what you get. Set one. Yeah, let's get to this first set. So they open with Birds of a Feather. And my first thought was this recording sounds incredible. Thank you, Adam, for choosing it. And thank you to all the tapers and Fishin, fish.in, for providing it to us. I love that they open with Birds of a Feather because you could just sense how excited they are for the story of the Ghost album. They nailed it during the Island Tour when they debuted it. And I think this is the third time overall that it's ever been played. And it feels like it has the sense that they've been playing it forever. They nailed the song right away. Yeah, this is a this is a great version of Birds. It's pretty straightforward in that it doesn't veer too far off of its main theme. However, um, Keep in mind, we're now three days into being in Copenhagen. So we're starting a third show. Everyone's loose. Everyone's comfortable. Everyone knows the venue, knows what the post-show experience is like, knows what the pre-show experience is like. You know, we don't have the same sort of in, intense excitement as night one. This is a perfect opener for this show. And I love that they play with it a little right out of the gate. What is the pre and post-show experience like? I don't really have much memory of what oh, the your experience was like. <laughs> you don't have a memory. That <laughs> I'll again. tell you that the I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that that uh, Christiania is sort of like a free for all. The rules are like no cameras, no hard drugs, no weapons, no cops, and everything else is like it's all good. So there are drugs out, and there are like food vendors, 
and it's very kind of hippie-esque and there's a ton of art around. So you're walking in super low stress. The post-show is really something to note in, in that there's so much to do right outside the doors. Unlike, let's say, Hampton, where we discussed it, you walk outside and then you're like clearing out through a large parking lot and there are cars leaving and there's all this stuff. Maybe there's more festivities, but you kind of got to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Even in the lot, you kind of got to go somewhere. With, with the Gray Hall or Den Gras Hall, as you know, it was called a long time. As you walk out, that's the post-show experience. No one's going anywhere. You're, you're rolling out the door and that's it. That's where people are. You know, how cool is it to sort of show up and just be there for a long period? You're never really walking more than 100 yards to go anywhere. Uh, super chill. Just like what an awesome, awesome kind of experience that really can't be replicated in the U.S., you know? So after um, they open with that birds of a feather, the next one up is cars, trucks and buses, which is one of my personal favorites because they played it at my first show. So I have that kind of sentimental connection to it. And I had the thought while listening that this is the sort of venue that this song was probably written for, right? It's a small bop jazz song. And I saw it for the first time at Madison Square Garden, which is enjoyable. Right. But I have a feeling that this venue I checked and the capacity technically is 1,660 people. I feel like this is what Paige probably had in mind when he wrote it out. I think cars, trucks, buses, and I think of the signs on the Jersey Turnpike. Right, right. When you pull so into the service centers. Yeah. yeah. So I picture I, I picture the signs, but this is a great venue for a, a song like this in that everybody can sort of dance and have enough space to be able to just sort of bop around. It also feels like it's well-placed in the first set. Yeah. Um, it doesn't go super deep, but it's got like a nice danceable bounce to it. Um, and I think position two was perfect for it in, in this show. When they followed up with theme from the bottom, I tried to put it in context. I wrote that a lot of, in quotes, newer songs for the time were being right. played. And I wanted to ask you, at that time in 1998, did it feel the same as if tomorrow they opened a show with four songs from Sigma o Oasis or from Big Boat or a mix thereof? Because most of these songs are at most two years old. The answer is no for me. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Fish was a very different experience in 1998 than it is in 2021. And I want to be clear that I'm not sort of, I'm not casting any judgment over these things, but I was very excited for new songs and new songs felt like songs in their prime. We didn't have the same crazy, you know, moonshot set lists that we have now since like 2010 
when fuck your face and and you know songs that that had had a gap of of decades started to reappear yeah, with some regularity back. yeah yeah i mean those kinds of things were much less likely i believed at the time that there were songs that were permanently retired i believed at the time that we would never see the curtain with right. or destiny I believed at the time destiny was gone right i mean like These are songs that I just didn't think would ever make their way back into the set list. And so it was common for the band to play quote unquote newer songs. But, you know, some of these newer songs are like Coyote. You know, it's not it's not like uh, it's not like they're. and, and, And by the way, a lot of these. I guess what we're talking about now are newer songs, but the band was still recording songs that had existed for a while. So if you go back and listen to the Bearsville sessions you know, which are from the same time, you'll hear like they're recording NICU. So I sort of feel like even though people seeing the band since early 90s would say that this was like almost past the prime, I would say, no, these are all like the meat, no pun intended, of fish songs. It didn't feel like, oh, they're playing new stuff, you know, and I was okay with hearing new songs too. So Well, it's funny you say that because Gaiute you brought up was, it was debuted in October of 94. So even now, at the point that this show was played, it was still kind of a, not an older song, but it was a regular. And when Sigma Oasis was released last year, the album was Steam is recorded on it. And that was first played in 2011. So this yeah. kind of weird placement, when is it right to record this song? Did we get it this time? I feel like now that's been kind of part of it for a long time. You're right. Uh, touche. I would say that this is this is sort of an academic conversation because in my head, I've got an explanation like, well, yeah, but Sigma Oasis was recorded like pandemic era. They were looking at their catalog and saying, what's what's right to record right now? But there was no pressure for Story of the Ghost. So why did it feel like Gaiuti was right to bring back? Remember, there was a gap where it had disappeared for a while. It, you know, parts of it were even present in Glide 2, some of the chord progressions. I guess I just sort of mentally have an explanation, <laughs> whether it makes sense or not. But I didn't feel like, oh, they're they're peddling new songs on us. We knew there were new songs. And uh, I think people were ready to hear them. And they gave us Ghost twice in Copenhagen. We knew post-Island Tour that they wanted to workshop some stuff. And Europe is a great place to do that, you know? Yeah, friendly crowd, small crowds, you know, much more loose, like you mentioned. I agree entirely. And another new song came up next, Brian and Robert, which this is one of the better live versions that I've heard, because this is a really delicate song. It's really tough to pull off. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I was not familiar with the song and it's a great venue to play a song like this. I wonder if the two are connected. You're you're point about it being a great version and just being in a small place where the echoes literally are uh, audible and the crowd is really quiet. When you listen to the tapes, and I know that you even made a note somewhere, you know, you can hear individual people talking. So it feels like living room sized when you're listening, right? Yes, uh, it does. One guy yells Buffalo Bill and you can hear it through the entire oh, show. He sure does. And I'm sure the <laughs> band could too. <laughs> So I feel bad for that is, guy. They never got around to it. <laughs> I know, I know. I feel bad that we didn't get it. But that said, uh, this is this is the right kind of room to hear a song like that. It, it feels intimate and it sounds intimate. 
speaking of intimacy, the the crowd now is shouting requests after each song. Trey says, after Brian and Robert, that one was for you. Chuckle, chuckle. Right. And then people start shouting back requests. Trey said, this is where he gets chatty, right? You mentioned yes. before that the band was a lot looser with uh, with banter. He said, it's up to Mike. You know, Trey's like pushing it as he always does. You know, Mike says no, pushing it onto Mike, making him the scapegoat. He says, it's up to Mike. I don't banter anymore. <laughs> Right. That's right. Yeah. They come out and say, all right, we're going to play two new songs. One of them slow and funky. And then I forget what the other explanation was. The crowd, someone shouts back slow and funky. And that actually he says, he says, I've got two new, two new songs. Do you want to hear one that's slow and funky or, and everyone shouts slow and funky right away. He says, okay, slow and funky. Yeah. And that brings him into meat the first time it's ever been played live. Yep. So meat is slow and funky, and that is exactly what we asked for. It's exactly what we got. Um, so, you know, I got to ask you to put on like 1998 glasses at the time. Meat is mostly meat in that it sounds like most versions of meat, but we hadn't heard meat before, and I thought it was really cool at the time. It sounded different from other fish songs. And no one and, heard it before. Right. I mean, the idea is... You want fish to really push themselves on stage. You want them to dip into different genres. You want them to play different styles of music. You want to be able to to vacillate between uh, really difficult, long composed songs, but also super loose jams and then jump into the funk, but also jump into the uh, rock. You know, we, we want to see them move on stage. So Meat was a really cool song that took them, I think, outside the standard comfort zone. Definitely. and. The next song took me out of my standard comfort zone when they play Ficus, which I almost completely forgot about as an entity before yeah. you chose this show. And I started listening and looked up the set list. This is an oddity in the fish canon. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen Ficus twice. Both wow, times, you're the one? <laughs> <laughs> both times, I've got to tell you, both times I thought to myself, what, what is that? It feels like it's nothing. It's just like ethereal, you know, something in the background. But now I look back and I kind of like it. It's, it's fun. I'm not sure it's my favorite placement after meat, but at the time it was two new songs, which was sort of fun to collect debuts. Again, you know, this is a song that has a ton of space in it. it. It has room to hear what else is happening. in a small place when you're listening to the recording really benefits the song because in a in a closed indoor place with you know eight to twenty thousand people making noise doesn't feel the same as a small room where when they get quiet at the end there's like actually nothing filling that space you could hear it or not hear it i guess on the recording I use the word flimsy to describe it. You use the word empty. Uh, It is flimsy. And it was hard to kind of gauge the audience response. To me, it sounded polite, but stunted. 
you know, as if it, you know, it came out a little half baked, uh, but you go back and it's only been played five times overall. It certainly seems to me like they didn't feel like it deserved a spot in the repertoire. Like maybe it just doesn't fit in the concert setting, you know, and I don't want to get controversial, but like, to me, this is, this is a space occupied by time turns elastic, a song, which I think is an awesome song, but like it's no matter where it goes in the set list, it always feels weird and it has to be nailed. So maybe Ficus is not destined for the stage. I have learned to appreciate the song over time, but I also wonder, is it because it's a rarity that I sort of like it now? If it became common, would I be like, uh, Ficus again, two and a half minutes down the road. Yeah, you've seen it. You're in the 40% club on Ficus. (laughs) Yeah. They move on to Shafty, which is its second performance ever. But I was a little confused. I'll have to ask your guys at fish.net. When it was debuted at the Island Tour, I don't know if it's called Olivia's Pool or if it was called Shafty to begin with. Uh. Yeah, I'm going to defer I'll to check that. Team. I'm a fact check I, at the end I of the I will show. get in trouble if I, <laughs> if I speak too authoritatively on this. But, but it was a good uh, performance. Shafty, yeah, it was. And, and you know, if you look back at Meet Ficus Shafty as sort of a centerpiece of a set, those are three songs that I think are odd together that just fit really well here on this night, this time but I'm not sure it could ever be played anywhere else without being a set energy drain, you know? Right. The opposite of a rush set list. Right? Yeah, Everything exactly. Everything played in its place every time. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. After Shafty is over, which I thought was really good. I, I wrote, it was a good performance. And you can also tell that there is room for growth. There's lots more chatter. Trey says, uh, we're going to play an old one, one of the ever-growing backlog of old fish tunes is what he says. And right, then lots right. of fan requests. This is where our Buffalo Bill guy shows up, I think, for the first time. Someone else is shouting for Peaches and Regalia. And yep. then, then we hear, if you, I, I didn't have to listen to it, but I did just for fun because I'm a completionist. So I rewound. And then I finally heard the Fluffhead shout. And then you okay. hear Trey, like a little off mic says, all right, yeah, we'll play that. And then they go exactly. back to Fluffhead, yeah. like the old, the oldest favorite that there is, arguably. This is a pretty standard Fluffhead that isn't the cleanest. Um, you know, we we have the benefit of decades of Fluffheads now, and so you can sort of be choosy about mm-hmm. which ones you think are well executed and which ones aren't. But I'll tell you what I think most people believe, even if they don't say it, which is during a show it's difficult to hear when things are sloppy unless they're really sloppy and it's easy to forgive some of the mistakes that you'll hear on tape. This one to me, I, I do not remember thinking that was a mess. I listened it's to it now. A and mess. I'm like, okay, that's an okay version. Yeah. yeah. There are flubs, but it's not a mess. No, no, I, I'm with you. I don't remember it as being not a clean version, but as I go back and listen, I think, Oh yeah, there are some, some minor things. But it's so funny how as fans, and I include myself in this group, that we're the first to pick out and to be a little bit snobby, but we're also probably the most forgiving group there is. You know, it's yeah. like it's like when you have a little sister. Only I can make fun of my sister. You know, you better. Exactly. Back- well, I mean, it's it does feel a little spoiled to be complaining about a few missed notes in <laughs> I mean, I, I'm guessing ninety nine and a half percent of fans 
couldn't properly count the rhythm in the front no of way. through the no Mariana way. Little Lamb section if their life depended on it. Yet, if for some reason there's a misplaced note, we're like, B minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, immediately. B minus, I'm done. You know what? This band sucks. They don't have it anymore. Trey doesn't practice. Right. Yeah. And then they'll take you away in the next, you know, set two. You forgot all about it. Uh, but we're not done with the first set yet. They follow up with Ginseng Sullivan, which is good, usual fish bluegrass. Happy to yep. have it with a very sweet solo by Paige. And they close out with a great one, too. Punch You in the Eye and Character Zero. I thought that could be the opener. This is one of those times that, from my memory, I thought that the set might end a couple of times before it actually did. And Punch seemed to me, just because of the number of songs in the set, seemed like that might be the end of the set. Uh, they, they tacked on zero, not my favorite song, but this is a ripping high energy version. Um, and sounds really good. And they sound like they're having a lot of fun. And I'd like to believe that they recognize we're wrapping up. This is our last first set in Copenhagen and just decided to give it a little extra energy for us. Set two. And speaking of extra energy, let's talk about set two now. When you suggested this show, my first thought was, okay, great, Europe 98. No one has brought this up. I'm excited. Let's dive in. My second thought, you might even remember this. I messaged you back and I said, wow, four songs, second set. And then you wrote back to me, like, wait until you hear the ghost. Those might not be your exact (laughs) words, but it was a long time, right? And then in the week since, I've gone from listening to the whole show front to back to listening to set two over and over again, front to back, to whittling it down to, all right, I'm putting this ghost and keeping it in my back pocket and I'm never letting it go. (laughs) I love to hear that because to me, even though this might sound a little goofy, I feel like this, this set is like a series and you can't just break, you can't break too much out of this series because it all fits together just right. Yeah, a lot of the jams echo each other. Sure. And this ghost, uh, you know, I don't want to get ahead here, but this ghost hands itself off cleanly to Runaway Jim. Sure. And Runaway Jim bleeds gently into a, a well-deserved Caspian, which lands into Yem. And so, I mean, I do want to talk about each one of them, but just the way the set flows, it really feels like they make a statement as all four songs. Yeah, it um, reminded me, though, if you remember the Farmer's Almanac books, right? I'm sure you do. And I course. think it was volume five or six. I can't remember. But next to the set lists, because it was after the 97 holiday run. That was, I think, the most recent set lists. There was a little illustration called Jam Snakes. Do you remember those where they would take the set? I do set? remember. That's yep. what this set reminded me of. It was past the time of the Cal Funk era. But these were jam snakes. It's one song, like you said, like a relay race, hands off the baton to the next song seamlessly. You got it. So let's dig into Ghost. Yeah, let's do it. So excited. You spoke earlier about the sentimental connection that you have with it, right? How it's your most listened to fist track and how this kind of centered you when I asked you to pick any show you want. This Ghost is what stood out to you. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost went through its own sort of reinvention. And if you listen to the 97 Ghosts, you'll hear them drop into this very slow funk intro, right? Whereas this one builds its way in 
in a way that's a little more familiar. Um, so Ghost had sort of, I don't want to say been redesigned, but it, it had been uh, massaged a little bit and tweaked into a little more modern version. My grandma might say it's been futzed around with a little. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This ghost feels like it's signaling what is about to happen. You know, the first few minutes are are, are ghost. Nice tempo and uh, fairly standard front end of the song. I thought that it was developing into that I put this in quotes in my notes, the 1998 sound starting at around seven minutes. And I wasn't even sure what I meant by that when I was writing it. It just kind of struck me that there's this kind of controlled chaos in 1998 where it's very smooth, very polished, uh, and at the same time, very democratic. None of the band members really stand out and take the lead. And yet your ear can be very... Uh, can be very active in moving from one band member to the other. And then you got to take a step back and listen to the sound as a whole. I thought that was developing very well in this ghost. I absolutely agree. I think I can even illustrate that. If you take the first three or four minutes of um, November uh, 11, 17, 97. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and listen to that ghost for just the first few moments and then listen to the first few minutes of this ghost, not into the jam or anything, just the first few minutes, you'll hear how different the approach to the song is and how much the sound of the band has changed. And I know it's only a few months between them, but I, I really think you'll note how the sound has evolved. And you can hear it. There's a guitar pedal. I don't know what it's called. I'm not a guitarist. I'm a drummer, so I really have no musical vocabulary, actually. <laughs> but you can hear it at about seven minutes. There's this, this pedal that screams to me 1998. And then about 40 seconds later, you brought this up at eight minutes. That turns into this really interesting pattern. I described it as a trill with Paige holding it down and you could hear the whole band simmering. It's like when you put garlic onto, into a pan with oil and it's just hot enough. It doesn't pop the oil. It just like, it's just simmering beautifully. And the whole, uh, the whole aroma is filling the room. That's like this, yep. but, but by sound. I love that. I love the, the description. I hear in my head that little, Thrill that you're referencing of, <laughs> and Trey has the courage to hold that for a little bit yeah. and let the rest of the band, you know, design something around it. And what really takes it over the edge is Fish sort of changes his drum beat to, you know, from that kind of mm, ha, mm, ha, 
to go a little off beat, like, and so, you know, there's, there's this sort of movement from the standard ghost beat to something a little more fun, a little more danceable. And that really signals the fact that, okay, we're leaving standard ghost station and we're driving to somewhere (laughs) different. (laughs) Yeah. And, and they keep changing for the better in this. And that's what I love most about fish when, to be very cliche, when we're on a journey together, sure. no stated destination. And that's what I think the best stuff comes out. Trey takes the lead at around 1130 and Fishman backs him up. And you put a big exclamation point on the notes where it says full on rock and roll riff at 12 minutes and 10 seconds. There's this section that we that we were just referring to where Trey is really it's a guitar led jam, right? But but what is most identifiable is that this is not this is not the jam. This is leading to where the jam is going. Yeah. And what I know the song for is not that section that we're talking about. It's what kicks in starting around that 12 minute mark. Right. Right after. Right. Right after Trey is leading. Now they've gotten to where they were going. My first thought at like what you were talking about a little after 12 minutes, they were starting to calm down as a group. Like the, the sound got a little softer that got a little bit more digestible. But when I looked at the, the media player, there was still eight minutes to go. So I'm thinking, having never heard this, well, what else is there for them to do? And Holy shit. Yeah. There was a lot well, more for one, them to do. One thing that, you know, I know from listening to other long fish jams is that, a lot of times the jams will lead to somewhere and they'll wind down and there needs to be some space and breathing room to give, to get the next wave. You know, it can't be all crest because honestly, eight minutes of crest is too much. At some point you're like, well, give me something more. Even the, the sweetest major key jams that fish is known for, they can't go on for too long or they sort of, lose their specialness if they just continue to deliver. So when it gets quiet, I feel like, oh, good. Now we're giving the band an opportunity to give us a new pattern, to give us a new rhythm or some other pattern which around which they can design the next chapter of the band. Yeah. And do they ever? Around 16 and a half minutes, the words that came to me were directed, focused, and endlessly listenable. Yeah. And, and honestly, the word I want to add is patient, because some of these things, you really need the quiet part to drive the, the faster or louder part. So there is a particular section where there's this slow, 
build peace that builds up and then it sort of paces back again, 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 and then it repeats the slow part again and then bang, 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 bang. I love that part of the song. It just feels like it's composed. It is so perfect in its delivery. It does. When you told me how great this ghost was, I I was listening to it as I often do while walking my dog around the neighborhood. And when this part hit, this is before I was looking at any timestamps or anything. I just knew I'm like, oh, this is what he meant. This is the part that he's talking about. It just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I read in your notes that you call this, your description is drippy sandcastle sound. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is so interesting to take away is like how much unspoken communication is happening with this band during this song. And again, I know that especially in a podcast, it's going to sound cheesy as hell to say, but this is the thing that I think people hear, even if they don't, consciously define it, somehow they are able to uh, come up with a uh, like a chord progression and it's got different tempos and different notes and the band all works together to get it there. And then for, I don't know, a minute or so, they play this thing. Like I said, it sounds like it had been written ahead of time. That's how mature the, the progression is. And I just think that is so cool to go back and listen and say that that was the the made up part. I mean, yeah. that is as good as half the other stuff we heard during the show. So the last tailing bits of Ghost are Trey playing this sort of pitch shifted last couple of notes. This like.
and it's just sort of echoey and empty and everyone else is letting him deliver on top of these very low notes that are hanging in the background. And in that space, after the, the roller coaster of Ghost, which gave us lots of different sections, when the opening notes of Jim pop in, it is like, it, it is just majestic. It feels like we just came down and now we're in that relaxing moment. And then he throws us right back into the, <laughs> the speed of Jim, you know? And it's not like it has to be fast. It's just way faster than where we were. And it's also a really good version of Jim. And it's pretty long as well. I, I just feel like that was a perfect choice in the moment. It, get, it gets off the beaten path at points. There's one part around nine minutes in where I thought they were going to start Piper, which I don't even know. I think it was debuted by this time. I think Piper debuted in 97. was actually played the night before okay i, I think i'm i'm almost positive you're about probably that. right um but it sounded there so, was this like very rhythm based part of runaway jim in this jam uh, i wrote instead yeah. trey keeps it going with kind of dissonant noodly guitar and the rest of the band keeps it pretty steady underneath him and a delicate yep. come down so when when caspian comes in you know a song that i really like and i think depends live largely on where its placement is because if it's too slow when you hand it off to Caspian, then it just feels like we are waiting for something, right? We are being held down while we're waiting <laughs> for something. But in this case, I feel like it's exactly the right position for it, particularly if you're Trey and you know where you're, where you're heading to close set two. Um, yeah. And we're only we, three songs. Ghosts, in, let's not forget. Well, but time wise, yeah, he, he must have known, you know, if we're going to cap this off with an extended yem, then we've probably got our set. So we've got this great ghost. We've got this great gym. Now we've got this great Caspian. And um, what a perfect setup. Beautiful. Yeah, I will say that the Caspian harmonies at the end are not great on tape. Well, can't have it all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Lest anyone think we're talking about four songs executed to perfection all the way through. Yeah, yeah. There well, are moments. Yeah, you should know it still is fish. You love them for all you've got. You know, it's right. when it's your own, you love them all. That's right. And they, so they do, as you mentioned, close set two with You Enjoy Myself, uh, which I think adds up to something like 17 minutes. I, I might be off on that by a couple, but this is a monster set and not in, not in a crazy, uh, you know, all time great. When you, you mentioned before, November 17th, 97 in Denver, I think you brought up that ghost where people talk about that set in revered tones. This one seems even a little more accessible and intimate 
because of how small it is. So it is a great set. It is a monster set, you could say, but it doesn't have the gravitas, I don't think, of some of those others. This is a little more personal in its greatness. For sure. For sure. And, you know, of course, I suffer from attendance bias. Well, we all do. I, I, I really feel like the combination of having experienced it in that place, plus being able to hear such clean tapes that, that you know, are such a great reflection of it, um, combined with my memory of the set, because it was just so, this was such a memorable run. I have very clear memories of things about Copenhagen and Prague and Barcelona from those, uh, from that tour. And that really fills it out in my head. It, it makes this set feel perhaps even greater than it might be. But also, everybody, I think, should be excited about a four-song set, right? I mean, that, that means there's something special there. And um, not every four-song set has uh, long songs that are great all the way through. But I think this one generally does. I think all of the songs are really good versions, even though they're not all jam chart versions. They are really good. I can double check this, but I do think that uh, both Ghost and Jim and Yem are all on the Fishnet jam charts. Yeah, as they should be. I think this whole second yeah. set should be. So that's a that's a pretty high percentage, 75% yeah. of the set. It's a complete story. Yeah, and and I think I was it. trying to um, I would think I was trying to say that, but I was a little less eloquent in the beginning. You know, you can pull them apart, but they're so much more powerful when they're all put together. It feels like Voltron to me. You know, yes. once you plug everything together, the set is a monster. And although I believe this ghost stand on stands on its own as one of the ghosts, if one of the best ghosts, if not the best ghost ever, in my opinion. I think when you look at it in context, it's, it's just even more legendary. And lest we forget, there is an encore. The show doesn't end at the second set. We should all be very happy to know. And they encore with simple. And listening to it, it is a very straightforward, typical simple for the time. Yes. But my heart breaks for the guy who is still yelling for Buffalo Bill. Before I know that poor bastard it. guy. If you're out up, there, he's very dedicated. <laughs> there, for the fact check, I am certainly going to have to look on .net and see when the next time they played Buffalo Bill was, and hope, just hope and pray with my fingers crossed that this guy was there for it. <laughs> well, it wasn't on Europe '98, so alas, he would have had to to hang in there for a bit. I don't have really any memory of this symbol. I have nothing there. Um, I remember the Yem, but the simple to me is a pretty standard simple. And there isn't really much to say other than, okay, it's nice. Yep. It's simple. Simple has the potential, especially more recently, to launch into some of the prettiest stuff ever played. But it didn't happen on July 2nd, 1998. So Adam Scheinberg, thank you so much for coming on Attendance Bias today for talking about July 2nd, 1998 at the Gray Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. Before we check out of here, let's remind people who are listening when they can expect to see or hear the Mockingbird sessions and also where they could find any way to donate and access the Mockingbird Foundation. Yeah, the Mockingbird Foundation can be found at mbird.org, can be found on Twitter at mbirdfoundation, or you can follow Fishnet on Twitter, where we'll be sharing all the same information 
to making making sure that it's available to everybody who is interested. Again, it's a free live stream for three days, June 4th, 5th, and 6th. If you'd like to donate, mbird.org, donate, uh, slash donate, rather, is where you can support us uh, or any of the links on fish.net. Uh, same group. Important to note that we are different than Waterwheel, but we are for fans, by fans, as they say. I love when people sort of think of us as us, including them. You know, we are fish fans and we think of ourselves as representing all fish fans. Uh, yeah, please come to ember.org and learn more about us. Please use fish.net, contribute as much as you'd like. And uh, thank you so much. Adam, congratulations on 25 years. Good luck with the Mockingbird sessions. And thank you again for coming on Attendance Bias. Cheers, Brian. Thank you. And that's it for my conversation with Adam Scheinberg, the president of the Mockingbird Foundation. Now, this show in Copenhagen was played 23 years ago, so it would only make sense that we might have slipped up here and there. I need to double check a few things, and that means it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. When talking about setlist notes on J cards of tapes, I use the example of, quote, Bob Galati sitting in on drums. Adam immediately picked up on this and recognized it. The example was a reference to a small handful of shows in which the drummer sat in with Fish. Adam mentioned the show on October 23, 1996 at the Hartford Civic Center. Galati sat in for the second set of that show. He also played with Fish on July 25, 1997 in Dallas, and again the next night in Austin for that entire show. When talking about the three-night run at the Gray Hall, Adam said that each night had its own personality, and as an example, he mentions that the June 30th, the first night of the three, was packed with songs. Checking on it, that night had 26 songs, including the debuts of the Moment Dance, formerly known as Black Eyed Katie, as well as the debut of Brian and Robert in the encore slot. Adam and I name-checked a few songs that were played live many years before being recorded for an album. The two that were mentioned were Gaiute as well as Steam. The respective debuts of those songs were Gaiute was debuted on October 7th, 1994, even though it was released on The Story of the Ghost in 1998, and Steam was debuted on June 4th, 2011, even though it was on 2020's Sigma Oasis. When talking about Ficus, Adam mentioned that he's seen it twice out of its only five times being played. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, that song never made it past November 7th, 1998. A few notes about Piper. It was debuted on June 14th, 1997 at the SFX Center in Dublin. Adam was right. It was also played the night before today's show at the Gray Hall during the first set. That was in between Dogfaced Boy and Waste. And the guy who was yelling for Buffalo Bill throughout the show today, this one is right for you. Fish did not play Buffalo Bill at this show, I'm sorry, but the last time it was played before this show was November 29, 1997 at the Worcester Centrum. The next time after tonight's show that it was played was almost the same date, but a year later, November 27, 1998, also at the Worcester Centrum. So Buffalo Bill Mystery Man, I hope that at some point you finally got yours. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I have to thank Adam Scheinberg, president of the Mockingbird Foundation, for joining me today. I'd like to thank the Mockingbird Foundation as a whole. I'm looking forward to the Mockingbird sessions. I hope you are too. I have to thank Fish.net for providing all the information we ever need on this show. I'd like to thank Fish.in, Fishin', for the recording used in today's episode. 
And if you enjoy attendance bias, come find me on social media. Send a message. I'll send you a free sticker. Support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app. And you can just tell one person this week about the show. Someone you think might be interested, give them a heads up. And of course, I have to thank you, the listener. Thank you so much again for listening. And I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Thank you.